Welcome to the third episode of Eastern World 2014 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Holmstone and joining me as always is a Canadian whose idea of a good night is five women, two guys and a gay man, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the guy who's always waiting for the horn, David Bindley. Office 38. I know. Is she not 37 this time? Are we not reducing it by one every single episode? <laughs> no, because then she's going to be younger than me by the edit. I can't have that. And this was another very interesting episode. There's... There's a comment in here I don't think would air if this aired in 2022 now. The episode title, do you want to take a stab at it, Michael? Uh, it's a tough choice. I think it's uh, <laughs> Ian Zwari Cusy. I must admit, I am very proud that I actually knew that that was a tough choice before I did the translation that I always do in Google. I have seen enough Vidum now to know what a tough choice is in Dutch. And that is progress. You'll have to impress Papa Jill DeCosta the next time you see him. Oh god, no, I'm not talking Dutch to Papa Bear. It's too intimidating. He's got to guarantee me a spot on uh, Belkia first. So previously, Art gave everyone the chance to save the pot by sending it to the future. A market challenge saw Sophie win a new reward in the Black Exemption and play it, meaning that everyone was equal at the test. Playing two nullified jokers in the end didn't save Owen, as he was the second person sent home. And as Logan said, the episode title is a tough choice. And almost immediately, they decide on the bus to invest their money and send it to Ellis Island. Arf says she wants to have witnesses when they send the money, otherwise there is a chance it won't actually get sent. Arf also says she she really wants them to wait until the following round before they send any money. It's very interesting that Arf wants them to send the money with witnesses, because later in the episode she does end up complaining to Sophie and Frake that they sent it with only each other as witnesses and the mole could have just taken the money out of the envelope and thrown it away. And the only reason she says that is because that is literally a sabotage the mole does in the previous seasons of this one. They are so hyper-paranoid about the mole doing exactly the same thing again that it is lampshaded in this episode. And it's one of my favourite mole sabotages ever, I have to say. And Freak and Sophie here, they, they do decide to send all 2,400 euros split between two envelopes to Ellis Island. Freak sends it to Jennifer and Sophie sends her money to Susan. Is it Jennifer he sends it to? Because I didn't catch who it was. His handwriting's very kind of loopy. Yeah, it's written on the envelope. It's very hard to make out, but I managed to blow up the screen and yeah. Yeah, Sophie writing down Susan, I had to pause at a very specific frame to see it. Yeah, the Susan one was a lot clearer because she wrote it on the notepad as well. But the the Jennifer one, it looked like an M, his first letter. And I'm like, nobody has the first letter M in this season. What's he playing at? You're not a fan of Menifer? No, I'm not a fan of Menifer. <laughs> but yeah, in sending the 2400, they potentially earn 2,075 euros if both of their selections are correct. Is that when you would have sent money? Send it right now? I would have sent it in the first episode, if I wasn't the mole. All Everything that's been earned, all 1,000 or whatever the hell it was? Yeah, because as soon as you reach the execution, and obviously nobody took any money in the last challenge of last episode, so they could have done it before the test and execution. If they'd sent it then, they would have doubled any money that's in the envelope, assuming that the person they've written it on is correct. But what if Jennifer and Susan don't make it to final three? They lose out on all that money. No, all the money. The money's safe. Oh, just the inter They just lose out on the interest of it. Oh, okay. I thought it was just a huge gamble. No, the interest is the only thing that is dependent on that person making it that far. 
the money that gets sent to Ellis Island is, in theory, safe. They do still have to collect it, but it is the money is is still there, assuming that it is picked up. Oh, so that's a really low risk situation then. Yeah, only Viers de Mol could really try and make investment interesting and almost succeed. Yeah, and this is, I would say, the most needlessly complicated twist they have ever done. It's so complicated they have to put additional graphics on the screen whenever they earn money for the rest of the season. I'm glad they did that because I could have just easily seen Vidim just not have that graphic at all and just leave everyone in a complete state of confusion about the bot. Yeah, I did fully expect them not to put the graphics on the screen, and in, in fact I have factored it into my notes that they wouldn't do that. And this is the third episode in a row where Art has to re-explain that twist. <laughs> yeah, and it is, it is, I believe, explained for the rest of the season until episode 9. It's just needlessly complicated. But I like it. That's the thing. It, it's sort of so shit a twist that it's kind of charming to me that they actually tried it and, as Bindle said, tried to make investment interesting. Because the twist on the face of it really isn't interesting. It's just... I'd love to pick someone's brain to find out why the hell they did this twist and why they thought this was the right time to finally do it 14 years in. I think this was around the era where they were sort of trying season-long twists all the time because South Africa's got the banknotes that turn into like photo paper that they've got to develop. Iceland's got... um, They keep building up to that Hofty House and all that sort of stuff. I think El Salvador has something in like episode one where they're like do you want to get contacted by the mole and then they don't resolve it until you know the second last episode of the season when everyone's forgotten about it dominican republics is probably the most infamous one because that's the banknotes that have a big blown up picture of the mole on the back of them however by that point everyone knew who the mole was anyway because of the unsubtle clue that is in episode two of that season you think the el salvador twist would have been that they just earned crypto for the whole season is El Salvador still the only country that uh, uses crypto as an official currency? Yeah, did you not see the news last week about it? They're basically going bankrupt as a result of it. Oh, really? <laughs> that <Yeah>. was quick. <laughs> yeah, the the new president made it so that everyone had to accept it, and I think it's only about 20% of businesses are accepting crypto now. And basically, the president convinced everyone to put all their money into crypto, and for some reason, the value of Bitcoin's gone down by about 40% since he did that. What a coincidence. I mean, who'd have thought flooding the cryptocurrency market with lots of money would, would bring the value down? It's almost like any economist could have predicted this, given the basic laws of supply and demand. And I say that as someone who did economics at A-level. So, unsurprisingly, I quite like the uh, the twist of this season of Let's just get matsy. I don't mind it. It's a it's a better long form twist than say Columbia's one, which is basically the same thing with the Jokers that have exemptions inside. This one feels like they've sort of thought about it a little bit more. Yeah, it's kind of charmingly hokey. I just think the interest rules are a little bit a little bit convoluted because it basically took you doing the maths to work it out for anyone to really know what the rules were, which shouldn't be the case. And it's also worth pointing out, they didn't talk about this twist at all in the preseason. The only thing that they talked about twist-wise was the Black Exemption and said, basically, watch and you'll see what the Black Exemption is. We're not actually going to tell you anything. They didn't tell you about the Philippines. They didn't tell you that this is the first season since uh, season 12 with more than one location. 
they didn't tell you at the time that they didn't know that this is the last season with more than one country. They also didn't tell you at the time that this was going to be the big actual long-form twist of the season rather than the Black Exemptions. I miss when they went to like two different countries in one season. So do I, because it's always a pleasant surprise when P.E. Anne or Art says at the start of the season, I need your wallets, I need your phones, but your passports, you can keep them for now. It's always a nice twist when they're able to do that. And obviously it's, as a result of probable budget cuts, something that they've had to do away with. But I kind of wish that they'd they'd surprise us with it again at some point. I'd be fine if they used two locations again in an exchange. The maximum pod is reduced to 5,000 euros for the winner. Oh, that's season 23's prize anyway. Like, I'm putting it out there. This isn't going to come out until, like, mid-November. I'm putting it out there now. We probably will know by this point where 23 is going to be. It will be a very low pot. It also helps that, like, when you've got two locations in one season, they sort of use places that probably couldn't sustain a whole season on its own. Like, I don't think you could do a whole season in Hong Kong or El Salvador or Iceland. But if you've got, you know, somewhere else to share it with, then you can get three, four, five episodes just fine. Yeah, I was thinking that this episode, that Hong Kong really is a bit too small a place to do an entire season. So I don't know why anyone at the time thought that they were always just going to stay in Hong Kong. Yet if you combine all the episodes of Amazing Race, you'd have a full season's worth of Hong Kong episodes. And the rest. And about six fortune cookie tasks. Yeah. (laughs) Although, fun fact, the place where um, that team got lost in the Find the Hotel challenge in this episode was very, very close to the Macau Ferry Terminal that they always visit. Because I have been to that Macau Ferry Terminal. (laughs) I actually had to Google it using their maps to work out where they got lost. Because it's very, very close to the, uh, the cruise terminal and very, very close to the Macau Ferry Terminal. They're both just around the corner from there. So Sophie is of the opinion that everyone can do what they want with their envelope. She volunteers to send her money first, with Frake sending some too. They split it equally. Sophie sends to Susan, and Frake sends to Menifer. Art then tells us that the Black Exemption was just played, but no one knows who by. Frake and Sophie have mailed the entire part to episode 9. In this episode, the candidates will get the opportunity to see both sides of Hong Kong and of each other. Actually, I think I misread it before. They didn't. They didn't send the money to uh, to Benifer, Yennefer, or Susan. I think they scratched out Ellis Island, and instead put an address in Amsterdam and addressed it to Rocky's charity. That's really strange. Instead of our flavoring nine, it just said Favela Street. That's really weird. <laughs> I love how this has become an unintentional running joke. By the way. I can't even remember whether my original comment about this was left in or not. (laughs) About how it's kind of uncomfortable every single reunion that whoever wins always has to say, oh yeah, I'm going to send some money to Rocky's charity as well. (laughs) It's season 42. I'm going to send this money to Rocky's charity. Rocky's been dead for 10 years. We don't have to send money to her charity anymore. (laughs) The Fafella kids are 35 years old. (laughs) <laughs> they all have nice laptops now and they all live in a three-bedroom penthouse. They don't need any more donations. So it's day five in Hong Kong. Daphne and Arth are already separated from the group and Art tells them that the skyscrapers of Hong Kong are iconic. The others will have to find them without knowing their apartment number or road. They've got one hour to find Daphne and Arth and each team that arrive on time will earn money for the pot. All Arth and Daphne have 
is a phone with their numbers, and the other six are 500 metres away as the crow flies. This is an interesting challenge, because obviously we don't get to see the setup for this, in terms of them being told to pick two people to get isolated from the group. It's all randomised again, I hate that. It is. I think the group played this badly, because the other six get the choice of where they start from, and they take the, one would say, reasonably logical move of going, what are the biggest landmarks in, in the city of Hong Kong? And then positioning themselves there. However, what I would have done is made sure one was on each side of the water, because the Hong Kong side is a lot more built up, and if they know they're looking for a building, then that's probably where you need to be anyway. But also, no one really goes to the tallest building in Hong Kong. The clock tower I can understand, because that is an actual iconic location and former Amazing Race pit stop, but I can't really see anyone going, I'm going to go to the tallest building, and hope that Arthur and Daphne are in in the tallest building somewhere, and then we have to search every room. I think I would have gone to the other side. Well, even that's what Sophie said after they split into the two groups, Jan, Willem, Sophie, and Freak in one group, Tigo, Yennefer, and Susan in the second in the second van. Sophie says, both vans are on the same side of the city. This isn't the best strategy. No, they absolutely lost immediately by having both teams in on the same side of the water in Kowloon rather than one in Hong Kong, one in Kowloon. I found it interesting that the one-hour timer didn't start until after the first phone call. I think from a fairness point of view, if they're picking their own locations, then it makes most sense for them to not get penalised by being stuck in traffic. Because they're only allowed to use the vans to get to their start locations, and after that, they're, they're on their own. I also thought it was interesting that they were told that the ferry takes forever. The ferry takes like 10 minutes. And we get a mildly racist comment out of that fairy timing from Jan Willem. Yeah, after last week's um, discussion about whether Jan Willem was the the villain of the season, why everyone hates him, I think I can kind of remember after these, the two comments we get here, because we get the the comment about um, all Chinese people being short, and then we get him separating out gay men from normal men in the beach challenge. Yeah, not a not a good look for Jan Willem. No, he kind of has a bad week. Yeah, I think it might be fairly obvious why the internet turned against Jan Willem at the time. He said, yeah, and even said that Chinese women are twice as short as him. And I'm thinking, uh, South Asian women can be around five feet or just under five feet tall. Jan was four eleven, so that means you're nine feet or almost ten feet tall. I don't think so, man. You'd be you'd be in the in the NBA instead of on Vidim. He's freakishly tall, or freakishly tall in this season. <laughs> and one other thing that annoys me about this challenge is the suitcase. We never find out what's in the small suitcase. It's a thousand euros. It's a trick. It was just supposed to be a thousand in both. That, that's what I assumed. But I said at least just confirm it for the audience rather than make us assume. I seem to remember it was confirmed in Mole Talk at the time that uh, no matter what you picked, the uh, the prize was €2,000, 1000 in each of the items. It's just a classic Venom trick. If you didn't know that, would you take? Would you have taken like the heavy sack or would you have thought they were doing that, you know, nothingness is the same sort of thing and just taking the case anyway? I think no matter what, I would have picked the briefcase because we know from the beach challenge it was 30 degrees out I have walked around in Hong Kong a lot. It is horrifically humid. I'm not lugging a 35, 45 kilo bag with me anywhere, is the answer. 
I'd rather sacrifice 500 euros from a challenge to not have to lug 35 kilos around with me during an hour-long challenge. Yeah, you know they're not going to throw gold bars into that bag that are worth tens of thousands of euros. No. I like how when they argue over whether to pick the heavy suitcase or the briefcase, just, uh, I think Freak and Jan Willem voted two to one against Sophie to grab the heavy suitcase, and I think she was the one who was so adamant that they go for the briefcase that they caved in and picked the briefcase anyway. Well, the thing is, if if you're in a team with Tico here, do you want to give him the heavy weight so he talks less, or do you want to give him a briefcase and let him talk more? I think the answer's fairly obvious. You want to lug him down with as much as possible so he doesn't run his mouth. Well, at the did you see that towards the end of the challenge? He wasn't even carrying the heavy the heavy bag, and he didn't even have the phone on him either. Jennifer and Susan had both in their possession. For all their faults, Menifer and Susan were very much carrying the team and also the bag in that challenge. <laughs> we're going to be calling it that all season, aren't we? Yep. <laughs> and then Tigo does the worst handover of a phone I've ever seen. I don't even know if Annifer is even the mole. I don't even know if that would be a mole sabotage of her dropping it or Tigo just being completely inconsiderate on how some what someone else needs to do in order to catch a phone from you. That's more that he just threw it to the ground like a pouting five year old. I'm trying to think whether that was a deliberate action from anyone involved, and I don't think it was. I think it's just sheer incompetence. I love how they thought their starting place would have been the best place to start, because I'm pretty sure, looking at the map, he basically started where he and Freak were for the light show challenge, like that same dock. Yeah. And I'm like, if you if you know they're in a tall building, you don't go, you know, 1,500 metres away. <laughs> For all their faults, Kowloon Clock Tower is a very good place to start because it is right around the corner from the ferry terminal and also it's right around the corner from a train station. So you have options immediately when you go to the Kowloon Clock Tower. It's not that far from public transport. The tallest building in Hong Kong is far from everything and is far from any sort of public transport. You have to get a taxi really to to even have a chance if you start there. I wonder if there was a minimum distance they had to start out for this challenge from the apartment building. If they were just a lot, if they were in the vans and they could just say, "Oh, let's get dropped off here," and they happened to be seventy-five meters away from the correct building. Well, they started five hundred meters away as the crow flies, so I presume they weren't allowed to be less than five hundred meters, but they weren't allowed to be specifically told whether they were within five hundred meters or not, because you know that kind of gives away where they need to get to. Yeah. That's what I mean, like, how would they, they would know their clothes if they, if they were to say, oh, let's get dropped off here. Oh, no, no, you can't get dropped off here. But you can get dropped off another 50 meters that way, and then it's fine. Yeah. I'm also going to have a quick look at where that uh, hotel they were staying in was, or positioned was, because I don't think it was a million miles away from where I stayed in Hong Kong. <laughs> found it funny just how badly they messed up where to go at the start of the challenge because they start out at 500 meters and then they rack it up all the way to two kilometers for one group and two and a half kilometers for the other group. Yeah, they really badly play this. It doesn't really help that you've got, on one side, you've got, you know, Daphne and Yad Willem sort of rushing and being, you know, generally competent. And then you've got Arf talking slowly and Tigo being Tigo. This is another great episode for Arf just being a pain in the arse. <laughs> 
She goes into ridiculously specific details about the buildings. Especially how it's reflect. She says, yeah, I gotta go to the reflecting building. I'm thinking, wouldn't that depend on the angle of the of the sun breaking through the, the smog? And often Susan have the have a very, very suspicious phone call because suddenly there's a lot of static. Uh, Off accuses Susan of faking the static. Then Susan has to switch the phone to Jennifer and then Jennifer talks. And then there's another time where Off is talking to somebody. Oh, she's talking to Susan. And then she makes Susan hand the phone to Tigo. Yeah, I love their mutual distrust of each other, Off and Susan. Because you would have thought that... They come from reasonably similar backgrounds. They probably are vaguely aware of each other even before the season. They do not trust each other. And it's hilarious when you see a challenge like this where they're meant to rely on each other and they just go, nope, hand me over to someone else. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, because it's just the same... Because essentially, Arth is just repeating the same information multiple times. Where she's saying the info and she's like, wait a second, no, no, no. I don't want to talk to you. I want to give this info to the other person. I don't trust you anymore. What a waste of time that is. And it's also worth pointing out, assuming that that the test stats are correct, Arf suspects Susan, but Susan doesn't suspect Arf. Hmm. Susan is very much in Arf's top three, and Arf is very much not in Susan's. But they do not trust each other. And then Neon Willem notes a potential sabotage that Daphne and Arf's number is erased from the speed dial on his phone. So we can't call them back. Instead, the speed dial has been replaced with a, maybe a pizzeria or, or something like that. Some sort of takeout. Chinese restaurant in Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> Do you deliver? <laughs> Why is the delivery charge so much? 30 minutes or it's free. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about them getting stuck at the dead end as well is the fact that they are not at all far from the train station. They are round the corner from Kowloon train station. And they don't think to just cut their losses and go on the train now. They're literally, I would say, a two-minute walk from the train station because I worked out where they were. Yeah, because that's what Arf suggests uh, Tigo, Susan, Jennifer to do is to switch to the train station. The ferry is still pretty quick because the ferry ride over is only about 10 or 15 minutes. They very much had enough time to do the, the ferry, especially as they were there. But, yeah, there's so much suspicious behaviour in this. I'm sort of amazed we they don't seem to open up the first phone call with like, hi, we're on the island, where are you? Or anything like that. Nobody took charge like they should have in this challenge. Everyone was very indecisive and confused. Yeah, instead they just basically let Arf talk at them. Which, as much as I love Arf, is always a terrible decision. So, with 11 minutes to go, Susan's seen that call from Arf. They're heading to the Shintak building that Arf has been talking about all episode. Arf has to speak to Tico, so she must be desperate. Sophie's team then find the clock tower and realise it's where the other team started. When Susan's team reach the right building, just two minutes too late, earning them nothing of 2,000 euros for the challenge. And then Tico does the most bizarre thing when he shows up to the apartment building, just starts kissing all the women on the lips. What up with that? He just hasn't got any recently. It's been five days at this point. We have Tico listing over all the women and Frank listing over all the men in, in the same day. Yeah, humidity really does something to you. 
So Sophie and Frake announced to the group at lunch that all the money that they had in the pot has been sent to Ellis Island. They seem to have the attitude that the group are going to take it as a positive, but it's fair to say the group do not take it as a positive, and in fact, Arf and Tico are slightly annoyed with them. Well, what what did Sophie and Freak think was going to happen? Oh, we made this huge money-making decision without anybody's input, and furthermore, we did the exact opposite of what everyone agreed to do just a few hours ago. Why aren't you happy for us? I don't think anyone's going to win in this situation, being perfectly honest. Because obviously, from a contestant point of view, Sophie and Frank probably did the right thing in that the earlier they do it, as Sophie says, the more money they make if they're correct on their suspicions as well. But in terms of doing it sneakily behind the team's back, and bear in mind that Tico, for all his anger, has stolen Jan Willem's envelope last episode, which still hasn't come to light properly, it's maybe not the best move for group harmony. And we cut to people playing on the beaches of Hong Kong. First thing I think of is, I don't know if that water is very clean to swim. I, I did get a huge laugh out of the intro where, like, Young Willem is calling the fresh air fantastic, and then you smash cut to a dude smoking on a bench. <laughs> yeah. And also, for all its huge positives from my time in Hong Kong, the air is not the cleanest in Hong Kong. Yeah, I would think it'd be similar to Manila, where it's fairly, fairly polluted. It's not as polluted as as Manila or indeed Singapore when the forest fires start in Indonesia, but it's still not the cleanest air or water in the world, I think is fair to say. And I like how it's just almost, it's either a mixture of clouds and smog because there's not a single breakthrough of sunshine on the beach there either. No, and it's also worth pointing out that this actually takes place the furthest south of any challenge in Hong Kong is in Repulse Bay, rather than in Causeway Bay or anywhere around the actual Hong Kong Fragrant Harbour bit. Did they change it to Repulsed Bay after Tigo visited it? Yeah, I mean, I'm repulsed by them being there. I'm, I'm just saying naked Tigo swimming is not an empty threat. Now that's how you pollute the waters. But yeah, Repulse Bay is actually a reasonably clean bay. It's certainly not as disgusting as swimming in Hong Kong Harbour, where as soon as you get pulled out, you will immediately be taken to hospital and pumped full of antibiotics. And I may or may not have caught on to what the trick of this challenge would be after Art makes the announcement, but they're near a beautiful Chinese dragon boat, and Art asks them to find eight people who can row, and they have 15 minutes to do so. For all of these people's thoughts in the first challenge of this episode going, oh, we can't fall for the trick on Vidim here. We need to pick the heavier bag because the lighter one will have less money in it. Let's not fall for the trick. Let's just do exactly what we should. And then immediately smash cut to the afternoon of that day and they fall into an obvious bear trap from Art here of, oh, I'm looking for eight people and there may be a dragon boat involved in this assignment. The funniest thing, he's he's not looking for them for a race, he's looking for them for one of Logan's mucky videos. Ah, yeah, good point. I need eight strapping men for this. And in fact, I'm sure um, I'm sure Frank was probably looking for eight strapping men on that beach as well. It's also worth pointing out, I don't think we actually mentioned this in all the excitement of, um, of Fritz Sissing appearing in Frank's intro, but I think Frank is an ex of Rick. Uh, he's an ex of Rick, and the partner he's talking about in this clip is Patrick from Mexico and Renaissance. Because I think they were dating at this time. 
how small is the Netherlands? I think I may have teased you with this, Logan. Um, I think you did. Ago. I've, I've just literally remembered now that we never actually solved that mystery for you. Yeah, Frank and, um, and Rick were together about four years, I think. They were together a while. But yeah, uh, Frank did date Patrick as well. I'm not sure whether it was at the time they filmed this, but um, yeah. There's a fair bit of vitamin insider trading, shall we describe it as. I mean, a couple of seasons after this, you do get a couple who literally meet on Vidim and are still married and have at least one child together. Interesting. And that was after this season? That was after this season, yeah. That already makes this show more successful than The Bachelor. Yeah. So they assume that they are looking for eight strong men to help them earn some money in this challenge, so head straight for the gym of the beach. And it is 30 degrees, as we see on the ticker on one of the signs. I wish they had known what the trick was going to be, because then they could all just go up to random families, and when the parents aren't looking, just grab a toddler and an infant and then chuck them into the dragon boat. So it'll be the eight of them versus eight toddlers in the dragon boat race. Logan wants people to kidnap toddlers. You heard it here first. Just for money. <laughs> there is a throwaway comment a little bit later in in this challenge of someone I didn't note it down knowingly saying, I wish we would have picked eight children for this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, uh, somehow, I think producers may have had a small problem with getting eight release forms signed by children. So is that supposed to be a pun? A small problem? It was an unintentional pun. Could you imagine if there were just a bunch of second grade and third grade classes on a field trip to the beach? (laughs) And then the contestant's like, oh, why didn't we see through this trick? It was so obvious. The way the rest of this episode goes, Jan Willem is so racist. If they got, you know, eight little children, he probably would have started singing the Oompa Loompa song. Well, I, w- I was watching the premiere of Australian Hunted earlier, and people were obviously doing their usual thing of moaning on Facebook, going, oh my god, this is so rigged, they closed down the petrol station just to film this scene. No, they didn't. But with Hunted, we always say, people are only really relevant if you see their faces, because they will have been the ones to sign the release forms. It's the same as with The Amazing Race. People don't sign the release forms if they're completely irrelevant to the story. And you can definitely track that. And it would have been the same thing here. Like, as soon as you see people's faces on that beach, you know who's going to end up in that dragon boat. It's obviously going to be the guy who immediately said to them, oh, no, I don't want to do any physical exercise, but then realises that he might be on Dutch television and miraculously appears at the volleyball net later in the uh, in the challenge, which he does. Tigo finds a kayaking champion, so the kayaking champion is more than eager to kick eight Dutch asses at, uh, at a rowing challenge. And we get the deeply uncomfortable scene of Arth, Frank, and Daphne just perving on this poor American guy. Completely understandable. Like, they put it in soft focus. It was a Baywatch parody. They play this for laughs, but they they do give it kind of a, a slightly trumpety soundtrack, shall we say, and soft focus on the uh, on the camera. And it's just a little bit borderline uncomfortable. To be fair, the soundtrack isn't the only thing that's horny. I mean, there aren't many programs you can where people are told to find eight people on a beach and we end up with a very lusty scene out of it. 
Yeah, Freak wanted to get his Freak on with that Abercrombie and Fitch model. So Susan and Jan Willem find five guys at a volleyball net, and Jennifer brings over two more guys. We then get the uncomfortable scene. And with five minutes to go, they got 13 potentials, including the guy who originally said no to doing any physical exercise until he realized he'd be on television. Let's settle on an eight-person team, including the kayaking champion that Tico found. Art then explains that they have to now race their team of eight. If they win the 100-meter race, they will earn 1,000 euros. They can also bet any money they have left in the pot. If they bet it and win, it is doubled. However, they've got absolutely nothing left thanks to Sophie and Frake, so it's just being played for a thousand euros. I also like slightly passive-aggressive art going, oh, thanks for finding my team for me. I didn't actually need you to do anything. I just kind of wanted to see if I could make you do things. It's supposed to be like the end of a TV episode with a meaningful message of, what? You didn't need to find your group of eight. The group of eight has been inside you this whole time. What if the group of eight were the friends we met along the way? Isn't the group of eight being inside you all the time what Freak actually wanted out of this scene? I I knew I'd run into that the second those words came out of my mouth. <laughs> I feel like this is a Tobias Junke Arrested Development scene right here. Yeah, nothing you say is going to make this better, Logan. So anyways, I'm sure the players are thinking, what? We don't have a thousand euros to wager on this? Oh, this could have been a sabotage. But then what they don't realize is that the money that was just sent to Ellis Island is probably going to be worth more than whatever money they could have wagered on this challenge, especially if they ended up screwing up the wager against a freaking kayaking champion. Yeah, that's the thing. The money that they sent is still more valuable than gambling a thousand euros here, even if they had a thousand euros to gamble. Because of the rule that it gets rounded up to the nearest 25, it's 2,075 euros that they will earn, assuming that both Menifer and Susan are in the final four. So that's still more valuable than doubling any money here. They shouldn't have been moaning about it, because they probably should should have earned more money and then sent more money. That's kind of how it works. At this point, they could have earned 14,800 euros from Ellis Island if they'd earned all of the money in these challenges. And when I saw the two groups against each other for eight versus eight, I thought, oh, I think that other group is going gonna, gonna to beat the Vidim contestants. It was, it was a very, very, very close race. But then you realize they have two advantages. One is that Sophie has a history of rowing and can teach him how to row. And the other is that Arf isn't doing any physical exercise. <laughs> <laughs> she just gets to play with the drum yeah, I love her so much Because if three episodes into this season You do not understand Why I am obsessed with Arf In this season This is the scene that proves it She is a star If you could have asked for any contestant this season To be doing the drum on the boat And doing it ever so slightly Out of time as well, could I point out You would want it to be Arf I think she was playing the song Hot Potato on the drum. (laughs) Hot Potato, Hot Potato. She's so delightfully enthusiastic about it as well, which makes it infinitely better. She just looks like a toddler who's been given this drum to play with. (laughs) It's like uh, when uh, my siblings and my cousins and I, when we were younger and played video games, we had this one cousin who was about three or four years old, and she always wanted to play the video games with us. So then how we convinced her that she was playing is that we would unplug the controller and just give her the controller, and she thought she was 
playing the whole time when she really wasn't. So it's like giving off the drum here where she thinks she's contributing and helping with the results of the challenge. But no, it's just so the grown-ups in the group can make sure they win this damn race. We're learning so much about you today, Logan. <laughs> yep. So they all work together well as a team and somehow pull ahead. And of course, 99% of the credit does have to go to our strumming in this. <laughs> she pulled them through. It wasn't Sophie's help with the rowing. It was entirely our strumming skills that got them there. In baseball, they have an expression calling a victory a character win. If it's if it's when you're at a huge disadvantage and you're expected to lose the game and then you suddenly rally in the last inning or two, commentators will say, oh, that was a character win today which also is a euphemism that the team just sucks in general and they weren't expected to win that game as well. You could say that because of Off's drumming, it was a character win for this Vidim group. And it's a character win for us all that Off is in this season. You know who would have been better at the drumming? Rachel Riley. But I I guess she was a bit busy because she's been a courtroom sketch artist, can't, can't dance, a pet food taste tester, tinier harvester, (laughs) ice ring handholder, product placer. Pheasant plucker, American gladiator, phrenologist, hell evangelist, president of Senegal, cage supervisor, large hadron collider, <laughs> Victorian street urgent, braille proofreader, token funger, barista resistor, waxwork Herbert Hoover, Smurf, and Labrador retriever retriever. <laughs> I've waited like 10 podcasts just to subject you to that, Michael. You're so proud of digging out one of the old ones of those, aren't you? <laughs> and you know the best thing? I'm not adding any context to that. No <laughs> one's going to really find out what that's from. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Did I hear Labrador Retrieve <laughs> Retriever? <laughs> yeah, all of those were definitely on a list that I have read out to you before. Courtesy of Bindles writing them because I couldn't be asked. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Have you just been looking through your old files and going, oh, I've not done that yet. I really want to do that just for funsies. Can you send me the full list? I'm pretty sure for the finale of that season, I read them all out. I definitely had a list put together of some of the best if I didn't. I don't even remember. And they win the race probably by a second or even less than that. Because they were losing for most of the race. And then Tigo takes it one step further, saying, I think we would have beaten the Dutch national rowing team. It's like, are you fucking kidding me, Tigo? It's not even the most arrogant he is in this entire season, or in this entire episode. So, you know, take your victories where you can find them. And they have a thousand euros in the pocket. So yeah, they cross the finish line first, meaning then a thousand euros of three thousand for the challenge, a thousand euros of five thousand for the episode, and three thousand four hundred of fifteen thousand five hundred for the season so far. Two thousand four hundred of which has been sent to Ellis Island. They could have earned an extra fourteen thousand eight hundred from Ellis Island with interest if they'd earned everything and sent everything. And then they go for a swim to celebrate. And then Jan Willem says where he was celebrating. Oh, Netherlands beats China, even though. I think the team would have been representing Hong Kong, and a few of those people were Americans, I think. And then Yana Wong says, all we were missing were our orange shirts and the king, Elvis Presley. So that means your own, I guess. I guess they're missing their orange shirts and your own. I was going to say, we don't talk about the king, because your own has enough connections to Yan Willem as it is. 
And then Freak says, oh, I don't think the mole could have done anything in that challenge. And I'm thinking, are you, are you so sure about that, Freak? Sure they didn't, couldn't, they couldn't have come up with a decent crew that, near, that nearly beat you by a second? That where it could have just as easily qualified as a sabotage? Yeah, this this challenge is a much more mole light challenge, I would say, than uh, than the first one. The first one is an obvious, obviously easy sabotage challenge. This one, not so much. And then we get a lot of coalitions between the women. Jennifer and Daphne debate what the mole could have done while eating popsicles. And then we get girls' night in one of the hotel rooms, minus the pillow fights. As Daphne, Jennifer, Aff, Sophie, and Susan all go through their notes together, but nearly all of them have no intention of honoring this coalition, where they share random bits of information that is likely never going to be on a quiz. Sophie jokingly refers to it as the sisterhood, and then Susan even outright says that this is a fake coalition. Yeah, it's such a weird coalition scene, because no one's ever going to do it. It's five out of eight! Five out of eight people are aligned. It's terrible strategy. Yeah, and all it does is set us up for not one, but two betrayals coming in the final challenge of this episode. Like the whole idea of, oh, let's save all the girls and just make sure the guys see their screens in case any of them are red, goes to pot almost immediately. And it's delightful. It was almost by design at the Design Institute, which is where this quiz and execution takes place in Hong Kong. It is. And art subverts their expectations by going, it's a lovely place for an assignment. Sadly for you, it's time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole who have knows these goes home, except for the mole who can never go home. And Susan has an exemption that isn't played yet. I'm very surprised that Susan played her exemption here, given that this was going to be a very obvious fake-out execution. I don't know, because... From Susan's point of view, if you're the only one who has an exemption and you publicly said you have an exemption, you can kind of assume that in a season where they introduce a major twist like the Black Exemption, there will be more than one Black Exemption in this season. So you need to burn it before another one gets introduced, I would say. So it's it's not the worst idea in the world for her to actually end up playing it in this test, even though, as you said, you can be fairly confident there's going to be some sort of twist to this execution that probably makes you uh, playing your exemption slightly redundant. And how do we feel about two non-limb executions in just three episodes? I don't really count the first test as a non-elimination, just because it's the first half of the first test, really. But it was still a fake-out. No one was actually going home. Oh, it's a fake-out. But by design, they're never going to send someone home after two hours. They're not crazy. Let me revise my question. How do you feel about two executions with the twists in the first three episodes? Well, all three did, actually. Because the first episode had the split test. The second one had the market where you could have earned loads of advantages. And then the third one had this one. Right, so there hasn't been a normal life. There hasn't been a normal quiz and execution yet. I think, taken individually, all three of them are really good ideas. It's just when you've got the back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, it just sort of makes the season feel a little bit like they don't trust the cast a little bit. Yeah, I think I think this season as a whole, and obviously this is way premature for me to be talking about this, I think this season as a whole feels very much like a testing ground for all the new twists. They're throwing as much at the wall as they can to see what sticks. And it's very similar to the current Fort Bayard season, which I know you'll know a little bit about this, Bindles, but 
Logan Blunt. Basically, their kind of theme this season is there are nine different modifiers that they're applying to games. So it could be that for a for a team that has the two record holders for most appearances on Fort Bayard, they give them loads of nostalgia. So they'll play loads of old games, they'll bring back old games, there'll be characters that you've not seen in 10 years who come back just for this episode. Or it could be playing on hard mode, where they give modifiers to loads of games, make them ridiculously difficult, and say, you've got to overcome this. And it feels a lot like that with this Vidim season, where they're just throwing a lot of these twists in and seeing what actually works, and then using them a little bit further down the line. I will say I'd completely forgotten how they actually did the non-elimination this season. Like, most of them I can, you know, remember. Like, I can remember how they did it in Iceland. I can remember how they did it in South Africa. But this one I just completely forgot about. Yeah, and I'll also say this isn't the only non-elimination potential execution this season. There is another one, which I had forgotten about. There are actually two in this season. Spoiler. It's not a spoiler for me to say that, and it's merely a potential. And I think they do actually publicly say that it's the potential of a uh, of a group exemption when they play that challenge. But yeah, it's not the only potential episode that will end in a non-elimination, this one. So, Tico splits on Arf, Menifer, and Sophie, with emphasis on Sophie. Daphne says she has a weird feeling that it's like they're already in the finale, and only two people have left so far. She says she knows who the mole is, so the rest are going to have to leave as soon as possible. Sophie splits on Tico, Susan, and Arf. Arf is on Susan, Sophie, and Frake. Frake says Menifer is calm on the bus, so maybe she's playing tactically as either a candidate or a mole. He gets the sense that she knows what's coming this season. Menifer is on Sophie and Tico, because he makes everybody crazy, and she's also on Daphne. Jan Willem is going down from four suspects to three, he's on Daphne and Arf, which would be pretty unlikely, but an amazing choice. Also on Menifer, although she's lower on his list. And Susan is on Tico, Menifer and Sophie, but she plays her exemption. <laughs> Did you wake up this morning thinking you were going to say Menifer that much? No. And I'll be perfectly honest, I've said this before in relation to Logan. Like, me just hearing you giggle when I do those things in a test scene is just going to make me do it more. (laughs) Because I'm a complete attention seeker. So that is going to keep sticking, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) To the point where I will put in my notes an autocorrect from Jennifer to many (laughs) So Art tells the group that they've had to say goodbye to two men so far, Maurice and Owen, and questions whether it's time for a woman. Or will Vistamol end for another man? gets up and leaves them confused and tells them that they will be forming pairs they need to think carefully about who they pair up with as only one person in each pair will see their screen who that is will be determined by the other six and this is another example of a twist that's that could be simplified but is made more convoluted with the whole card scheme i feel like the whole card thing could have been thrown out and that the other six just come to a general consensus as to which one of the two sees their screen. I do like the way they do this non-elimination, but they just add that one layer, they add that one layer too much, which is each pair has to nominate one person to pick out of the two of them who gets to see their screen. What they could have done to make it easier is just keep the cards, but make each pair pick who they want to see out of each pair. Because then it's a then it's three votes, so you'll always get a majority anyway. Oh, just each pair comes to a consensus when, say, oh, it's Freak and Menifer's turn. The other three pairs each vote down whether they want Freak or Menifer to see their screen, and then it's a two-to-one or three-zero vote. Yes, but that's how I would have done it, because it takes out one of the steps, and it makes it less 
needlessly complicated this. I do like it, and I I wouldn't be opposed to them doing this sort of a non-elimination again, because obviously they have to have one just from the structure of the season, unless unless it's an eleven-person cast. But I I like the way they did it. I just think it's a little bit complicated. I like how it was a one-minute time limit, but the scene itself is longer than the one minute that was given to the contestants. Yeah, and also also a minute-long scene of people writing one name down is not how you probably should be spending your real estate on a television program. And I kind of like that they had the balls to just do it anyway. I, lo- I love how someone describes it as granting or squaring, which is basically how you describe Amazing Race Australia at this point. The question is, will this episode come out before Amazing Race Australia 6 does? Or will 10 forget about it? So Freak and, Yenif- Freak and Menifer nominate Susan to decide which one of them sees their screen and the women's alliance is gone. Yeah. I just love that Susan immediately agreed to this women's alliance because obviously you do if it's a big brother situation of someone coming to you going, I trust you. Let's make an alliance. And her just going, yeah, yeah, of course, that sounds great to me. And then in confessionals, she just goes, yeah, it's not sustainable, is it? No one actually believes this, surely. And then immediately just stabs her in the face. She doesn't even wait another episode and and uh, backstabs her. She just stabs her immediately, and it's delightful. Yeah, Susan just says, yeah, Menifer, you're going to see your screen. And Menifer hates it, and then immediately appreciates it when it's a green screen anyway. Yeah, she got information. Although we do get the delightful quote of that woman's bond is worthless. And Susan reasons it by saying that she suspects Menifer more than she suspects Freak. Arthur and Daphne also give Susan control. She questions whether she has to do everything today. And she selects Arf to see her screen, and that's also green. Yon Willem and Tico volunteer Arf, and Yon Willem is selected. His screen is also green. And then Daphne gets the final choice of who to see out of Susan and Sophie, and she selects Susan. And then Art breaks convention by revealing that Susan played an exemption, meaning that everyone is through to episode 4. And I'll also point out on the Women's Alliance note, the women could have easily had a little bit more control of this execution if they'd actually thought about it, and made sure that the men weren't paired together. Because they let Jan Willem and Tico pair up, whereas they should have made sure that each of those was paired with a woman. Because they have the advantage, if they believed in this alliance. Yeah, they clearly did not believe in the alliance if that was allowed to happen. And then we get our now traditional scene at the end of each episode of Tico pitching about other people's choices and other people generally, by saying that he wouldn't have done it at all, it's too cosy, and he tells Daphne to keep her eyes on the prize. Yeah, Daphne's choice is an interesting one here. She picked the person that she knew would have an exemption instead of taking a shot at somebody who could have gone home and improve her own odds of winning the whole season. It's also an atypical non-elimination challenge because it has no effect on the game at all. The biggest effect it has on the game is whether all eight people continue. But usually if you see something like this, there is a price attached to it, or some sort of advantage attached to it, or some sort of knowledge attached to it. But instead it's just, it's simply played as a non-elimination challenge. and Strictly played as a non-elimination challenge, with no peripheral bullshit attached to it. Which is very rare for Vidim to do, especially now. If you two were paired up in this situation, who would you have chosen to decide who sees their screen? Arf. <laughs> Because by this point in the season, I would have been best friends with Arf, and therefore she would not have picked me to see the screen. (laughs) 
Sorry, Logan. <laughs> because I would guarantee that as soon as I met Alf, I would become immediate friends with her. Who would you have picked, Spindles? Probably Frank. And I don't know why. Definitely wouldn't have picked Tigo. Or Metaphor. God, no, I would have been trying to get Tico out of this season by this point. I would have put together a seven-person alliance against Tico, just just so we didn't have to deal with his nonsense. <laughs> if I was paired up with a woman in this challenge, then I'd want Tigo to pick which person sees their screen. Yeah. So next time, there is a particularly interesting game on some long escalators, and I'm not spoiling what it is for Logan, but I do remember your quote from the uh, challenge card of this Bindles, because it makes me laugh every time I read it. Art offers them all treats, and everyone abseils down a dam before someone actually sees a red screen. Mr. Saunders, what's your suspect list look like? So, number one is Off. Number two is Jan Willem. Number three is Sophie. Number four is Freak. Number five is Menifer, <laughs> formerly known as Jennifer and formerly known as Yennefer. Number six is Susan, and number seven is Daphne. Interesting. And my suspect list of the time was Arf, Susan, Sophie, in that order. What? Who would have ruled Tigo out at this point? I will say, there is at least one week of my suspect list where Tigo was on it. Whether that is this week, I'm not telling you. But I did at one point put Tico as my number two. Tigo spent his whole life being a number two. On that note, have you guys got anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I think I'm good. I'm good. In that case, thank you very much for listening to our Views to Mole 2014 podcast. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for an old mole in Hong Kong and the Philippines. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at Logsukwerki, Bindles is the Grim Recapper, and I'm MJ Harmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles, and we'll see you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring. I'm going to go have breakfast with Menifer. I said, what about breakfast with Menifer? <laughs> <laughs>